Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Tuesday, April 16th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Bernie Sanders releases his tax returns, Bill Weld is officially challenging Trump in the Republican primary, wealthy Democrats are worried about Sanders, most of the Democratic Q1 fundraising numbers are officially online, how the polls match up with the money, and Beto O'Rourke releases 10 years of tax returns, too. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Yesterday, as promised, Bernie Sanders released 10 years' worth of tax returns, including his 2018 return. In a statement on his website, the Sanders campaign stressed that he had been releasing financial disclosures since 1991, which is when he started serving as a member of the House. But those were not tax returns. The statement also said that Sanders had not previously released his returns because it was, quote, standard practice at the time, end quote, for only the final nominee to release those returns. Well, okay, clearly times have changed, and the release today shows that Sanders has acknowledged that. He said in a statement, quote, These tax returns show that our family has been fortunate. I am very grateful for that as I grew up in a family that lived paycheck to paycheck, and I know the stress of economic insecurity. That is why I strive every day to ensure every American has the basic necessities of life, including a livable wage, decent housing, health care, and retirement security. I consider paying more in taxes as my income rose to be both an obligation and an investment in our country. I will continue to fight to make our tax system more progressive so that our country has the resources to guarantee the American dream to all people. End quote. All right, so what do those tax returns actually tell us? Let's start with 2018, as we have for all the other candidates who have released that year. Sanders and his wife Jane earned $561,000 and paid just under $146,000 in federal taxes. They also donated about 3.4% of their gross income to charity, which works out to about $19,000. The campaign also noted that one of Sanders' books has all its profits going straight to charity, and that money is not reflected in the returns. So, digging into those returns, I opened the PDF for 2009, the first year released, which is filled out by hand, presumably by Bernie or Jane Sanders. And whoever did the return made a mistake and crossed it out on the very first line, and I think we can all relate to that. One tidbit that jumps out immediately is that Bernie Sanders has no middle name. Just file that one away as a little factoid for your next cocktail party. Okay, so back in 2009, that first year released, they had a combined income of $314,000. And in that year, they gave just over $6,000 to charity, which was about 2% of their income. It's unclear how much each of them made from their work as the W-2 forms are not included. But we can make an educated guess because a senator's salary in 2009 was $174,000. And, by the way, that's still what the salary is for a sitting senator. Now, in addition to regular income back in 2009, there is a little money in there from a pension and some from Social Security. And the story in 2010 is very much the same. Similar numbers in terms of income and charity, fluctuating a little, as you would expect. From then, all the way through 2015, the pattern basically continues. They make more than $200,000 each year, and some years more than $300,000. And then, in 2016, it's over a million dollars, and again in 2017. 
But then in 2018, like I said earlier, it's just half a million. Now, as Sanders has already explained to the media, and as these tax returns demonstrate, the explanation for that change is very simple. It is income from several very successful books, at least the ones where they didn't give away the money to charity, and note that Jane Sanders also got a nice advance for her upcoming book, and that's in there too. In the Washington Post, Michael Cranish and Sean Sullivan looked at those returns and focused on 2017 and 2018. They wrote, quote, Sanders and his wife were in the top 1% of all taxpayers for those two years, according to an Internal Revenue Service calculation that said such people had an adjusted gross income of $480,000 or higher. By comparison, the average income for an American household in 2018 was $62,175. And the Post also asked an expert to look at the 2018 return. Quote, Daniel Shaviro, a New York University School of Law professor of taxation, who examined the 2018 return at the request of the Washington Post, said the return was straightforward. Now, quoting Shaviro here, he didn't do a whole lot economically or tax-wise other than earn his Senate salary, Social Security income, and book royalties, as well as paying state and local taxes and giving about $19,000 to charity, Shaviro said. This clearly is not the tax return of someone who does either a lot of tax planning or complex investing, end quote. And here's a tweet from Nate Silver on Twitter. He wrote, quote, As always with these things, who the hell knows, but I'll bet the only Democrats who are deeply bothered by Bernie having made a bunch of money from book royalties, as was already known from his Senate disclosure forms, are Democrats who wouldn't have voted for him anyway, end quote. Now, the key takeaway from this story is you've got a Democratic primary field with tremendous income disparity among the candidates. The lowest income I've seen so far is Governor Jay Inslee, who, along with his spouse, made $202,000 last year. The highest I've seen is Kamala Harris, who, also with her spouse, made $1.9 million last year, most of that from the spouse. In the middle is Elizabeth Warren, who made about $906,000 with her spouse last year. The point is, these numbers are something we should examine and ask questions about, and now Sanders has joined much of the field in allowing us to do just that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Last night, former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld went on CNN and announced that he is challenging President Trump in the Republican primaries. Now, let me be super clear here. I do not know much about the Republican primaries, 
and I am not sure what to make of this, so let's look into it together, shall we? So Weld told Jake Tapper on CNN, quote, I really think if we have six more years of the same stuff we've had out of the White House the last two years, that would be a political tragedy, and I would fear for the republic. I would be ashamed of myself if I didn't raise my hand and run, end quote. Tapper then pointed out that about 90% of Republicans currently approve of Trump, and like I mentioned yesterday, Trump's campaign just raised $30 million in the first quarter of this year for his re-election campaign. So Tapper asked Weld, do you really think you can beat him in a primary? And Weld said, quote, yeah, I do. I've done it before, particularly in New Hampshire where I'm spending a lot of time. It's one vote at a time and one voter at a time, and you've got to meet him. But, you know, what we have now is a president who mocks the rule of law. I spent seven years in the Justice Department trying to keep the politics out of law enforcement. He's trying to put it in. A president who says we don't need a free press, who says climate change is a complete hoax. He's not paying attention. I doubt very much he's made a study of any of those issues. He seems to have difficulty, in my opinion, and I was a prosecutor for quite a while, he has difficulty conforming his conduct to the requirements of law. That's a serious matter in the Oval Office, end quote. Well, that's Bill Weld for you. He spoke a little more about his campaign strategy and how the current president is actually pretty unpopular in certain states, especially California, and how voters might welcome a second option. And he aims to be that option, to be someone with more traditional Republican values. Having said that, an article in the Washington Post pointed out that Weld has not won an election since 1994, and as recently as 2016, he ran on a libertarian ticket with Gary Johnson. In an interview with Stuart Stevens, who was Weld's strategist and, oh, by the way, was Mitt Romney's 2012 chief strategist, Stevens said, quote, It is a long shot, but it's certainly less of a long shot than Donald Trump was when he announced and no one thought he was serious. Tonally, he's going to run a very different campaign. He's not mad at the world. He's not a victim, end quote. Stevens later commented on some other possible Republican primary challengers saying, quote, a robust Republican primary would be a great thing, end quote. Okay, the strategy here is clear. Try to make waves in New Hampshire, which is the first state to vote in primaries. Yeah, there's the other states and all that stuff, but if Weld manages to do well in the New Hampshire primary, that may be a serious problem for Trump. Here's some more from Stevens. Quote, New Hampshire likes to surprise. The history of New Hampshire is to give candidates a really serious look. Any insurgent campaign has to do well in New Hampshire. History shows us that, end quote. And he is right about that. And by the way, Weld is from Massachusetts, which is right next door to New Hampshire. So it's almost like a hometown crowd for him. Let me quote two historical examples here. And again, this is from the Washington Post story, link in the show notes. Quote, in 1992, President George H.W. Bush faced a troublesome run from the right from commentator Patrick J. Buchanan who embarrassed the incumbent by winning 37% of the vote in the New Hampshire primary and fighting Bush until the national convention. The weakened president lost to Democrat Bill Clinton. Similarly, President Gerald R. Ford had to fend off a Republican challenge from Ronald Reagan in 1976 before losing in the general election to Democrat Jimmy Carter. End quote. Now, the concern here is not really that Trump might lose the Republican primary to somebody else, at least Today, that doesn't seem remotely likely. It hasn't happened to an incumbent president since 1884, 
when Chester A. Arthur managed to lose to James Blaine at the Republican convention. That is, as we say, ancient history. No, the concern here, as reflected in the stories of George H.W. Bush and Gerald Ford, is that an active Republican primary would force Trump to divide his campaign attention between challengers in his own party and the Democratic primary field as well, and he'd be doing all this while still running the country. So stay tuned. We may or may not have more coverage of this Republican primary matchup, but for the moment, the news is overwhelmingly on the Democratic side. In a New York Times article today, Jonathan Martin goes deep on the possibility of a contested convention, and specifically one in which Bernie Sanders is a major player. Here's the first bit from his article, quote, When Leah Daughtry, a former Democratic Party official, addressed a closed-door gathering of about 100 wealthy liberal donors in San Francisco last month, all it took was a review of the 2020 primary rules to throw a scare in them. Democrats are likely to go into their convention next summer without having settled on a presidential nominee, said Ms. Daughtry, who ran her party's conventions in 2008 and 2016, the last two times the nomination was contested and Senator Bernie Sanders is well-positioned to be one of the last candidates standing, she noted. I think I freaked them out, Miss Daughtry recalled with a chuckle, an assessment that was confirmed by three other attendees. They are hardly alone, end quote. So the story here is that some rich donors in the Democratic Party are concerned about Bernie Sanders because weird stuff can happen in a contested convention. For instance, he might have such a large chunk of the vote going into the convention that someone would have to cut a deal with him leading to some kind of bizarro ticket where it's unclear who would be on top or how the ticket might even work ideologically, the core concern seems to be about party unity and making sure that somehow those Sanders supporters line up behind somebody who might not be Sanders. This quiet effort is called, and I'm not kidding, Stop Bernie. And you know who hates stuff like this? Bernie Sanders supporters! Come on, people! I mean, this is literally a story about wealthy elites trying to stop a populist candidate who is currently leading in the polls. And how exactly is that good for party unity? Look, if you ask me, it is mid-April 2019 right now, and we won't see a primary vote until next year. We are still getting major new candidates joining the race. I'm looking at you, Joe Biden. And there is a ton of time for all this stuff to shake out. Let's continue paying attention and having a serious discussion about issues. That is where we ought to be right now. All right, fundraising time. I feel like I should have a jingle for that or something. As I mentioned yesterday, the Democratic fundraising numbers for Q1 are starting to appear online. They're not all there yet. I'm sure there's some team at the FEC working to, like, cut and paste the numbers into the thing. But again... There's a link to the FEC fundraising database in the show notes so you can go see for yourself what all the numbers are across all the primary candidates for all the parties. And the news here, as much as there can be any news, is kind of slim. The top part of that top 10 ranking I read yesterday remains the same in terms of Q1 donations. Nobody was holding out on us except maybe John Delaney, who lent his own campaign a little over $16 million which is not really fundraising in the usual sense. It is interesting that candidates like Kirsten Gillibrand and Elizabeth Warren are now able to include their previous campaign money in the bank for their new campaign, but it's not new money that they raised. However, with those numbers, you can get a sense of who has how much money on hand in the primaries right now, and you can see who is spending a lot and who is not. 
Now, there is some news near the bottom of the pack. Washington State Governor Jay Inslee raised $2.2 million, and that's the first we've heard about that. That puts him ahead of two candidates I listed yesterday, Andrew Yang and Julian Castro. Also, we've got former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper with just over $2 million, which again puts him ahead of two candidates I mentioned yesterday. And then there's Marianne Williamson, a candidate I have not mentioned before on this show, who raised over $1.5 million. Williamson is a super popular writer, lecturer, and activist, and she is probably best known as a spiritual teacher and friend of Oprah Winfrey. Even though her initial fundraising is fairly low, Williamson is a candidate with a large and mainstream social media following, not to mention her traditional media following. She's appeared on a ton of TV talk shows. So keep an eye out for that campaign because Williamson has the potential to break through to the mainstream in a way that many other smaller candidates do not. In any case, we continue to see a Democratic primary field where the Q1 numbers mean Bernie Sanders is on top, Kamala Harris is in second place, we're pretty darn sure Beto O'Rourke is in third, but the numbers aren't up there yet, and then there's everybody else. I'll keep you posted as more numbers come in. And now a whole segment about one tweet. So there's a tweet this morning from Harry Enten, who's a senior writer and analyst for CNN. In the tweet, Enten compares the total Q1 fundraising as a percentage of the overall primary field fundraising versus the real clear politics average polling for each candidate. Okay, that's like a super mouthful. What does that mean? In plain English, Enten is trying to figure out, are Democrats giving money in the same percentages to the candidates that they say they support when pollsters ask them who they support? Okay. That, that makes sense. Now, it's really hard to read a tweet with a ton of numbers in it out loud and have it make any sense. So I'm just going to summarize this. Enton's point is that if you rank the RCP polls and you rank the Q1 donation numbers, they line up very closely. In fact, the top five candidates are right in line with no deviation in their ranking, though the donation percentages differ by maybe a few percentage points. So... The answer is yes, Democrats are putting their money where their mouths are. They are spending in line with the candidates that they say they support. And those top five candidates again are Sanders, Harris, O'Rourke, Buttigieg, and Warren. And last up today, another story on tax returns. I promise I will keep it quick. Yesterday, Beto O'Rourke joined the growing movement in releasing 10 years of his tax returns, though he did not release the 2018 return. He did promise to add that one to the list soon. In the most recent year available, which is 2017, O'Rourke and his spouse Amy earned over $366,000. This is a little up from previous years, which ranged from about $280,000 way back in 2008, to $330,000 in several recent years. In 2017, O'Rourke paid about $81,000 in taxes and gave about $1,200 to charity. The only outlier in those numbers compared to other candidates is the charitable contribution, which is notably low. It's less than one-third of 1% of the overall income. And there's not a lot more to say here. Again, you can go look at the tax returns, but what you have here is a candidate who fits right in with the group of candidates near the lower end of income, who are earning somewhere in the neighborhood of $300,000 plus or minus annually. I have yet to see a major candidate in this primary who reports making less than $200,000 a year, and I will definitely tell you if I do. 
That's it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I've been your host, Chris Higgins. You know, there's a time in every podcast's life when the host asks the listeners to leave a review on iTunes. Those reviews and ratings help people find the show. It's a big part of how Apple recommends podcasts to new listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, I would love it if you would take a moment to leave an honest review on iTunes. Thank you, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. Tomorrow.